Hello from ABA Annual 2016 in lovely San Francisco, California. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I'm Bob Heath from Austin, Texas. I'm Ben Griffith from Oxford, Mississippi. And we're on the road with the Legal Talk Network. So thanks, everybody, for joining us here on the road. As I said, this is a remote podcast we're doing here on the floor of the exposition hall at the ABA annual meeting. People are walking by. If you hear noise in the background, that's just the hubbub surrounding this whole meeting. Uh, So don't let that distract you. Uh, Today, we're excited to be talking about a panel that just concluded about America Votes. So I wanted to talk to our guests. First of all, thank you all for joining us. And just talk about what happened at your panel. What was was the general message and theme of the day for you all? We had three speakers. All three were chapter authors who had contributed to the book, uh, the third edition of America Votes challenges to modern election law and voting rights. Bob Heath, to my right, was one of the authors that addressed the Evanwell versus Abbott decision, and uh, he dealt with that in detail. had some very good questions from the audience as well on that, dealing with citizen voting age versus total population as the basis. Uh, uh, Nicole Austin Hillary from the Brennan Center uh, dealt with the question of voter ID. There have been four major decisions just in the last two weeks on that subject from the Fourth and the Fifth Circuits and the Eastern District of Wisconsin, and they've been uh, very timely. I said it was almost like manna from heaven to have fresh case law come down like that. I dealt with the racial gerrymandering that's become, it's come back in the vogue as a, an area of litigation in election law that had been dormant since the Shaw versus Reno case uh, 20, 30 years ago. It started with the Alabama case a couple of years ago, and it's, it's in the Supreme Court now, and our problem is we don't have Justice Scalia there, so we have a 4-4 court that can't really decide decisions like that in a very controversial way that are quite controversial and they'll end up being 4-4 splits that won't really um, do anything other than affirm the lower court's decision. So we dealt with some of those types of issues, but a very good audience. I thought we had a good group. Great. Well, let's talk about Evanwell then. So, Bob, what uh, what do you take away <laughs> from that decision as it came down? Uh, what does it mean for the future? Sure. Evanwell uh, had the promise of being a very significant uh, Supreme Court case, and it was largely for what it didn't do. Uh, it, had it uh, gone Evanwell's way, it would have fundamentally changed the way we draw state legislative districts throughout the country. Uh, now, virtually everyone does them in terms of having districts with equal population in the district, and that's total population, everybody. What Miss Evanwell wanted to do is to say, Let's just have people who are potentially eligible to vote. Generally, citizen voting age population have to be above the age of 18 to count. You have to be a citizen of the United States to count. So what that would mean is if, for example, you were in a retirement community, everybody's over 55, they're probably all citizens, they counted 100%. Across the highway, you have a neighborhood with two-parent families, two school-age kids, they count at 50% because the children don't count. Right. Similarly, for non-citizens, they live here, uh, they pay taxes. You have to have schools, you have to have roads to accommodate them in the population, but they wouldn't count. So what the court did, relying on 
the 14th Amendment and the history of the 14th Amendment, uh, and it was actually debated back in 1866 when the 14th Amendment was being decided and, and formulated, uh, was that they were going to use a total population base. They left open the possibility. They didn't address the issue of whether that was required, but certainly states have the option of doing that. They're not required to use eligible voters, and I think everybody in the future will continue to use total population. Yeah, this was an interesting case. We did uh, on my Legal Talk podcast, we had a bit on this earlier yeah. pr- before the decision had come down. Uh, it just struck me as such an odd break from kind of the history that I always kind of felt like even if you couldn't vote, you got counted. The Constitution kind of controversially even set that up, right? The three-fifths, it's not like slaves were voting, but they were still counting in apportionment. So it seemed like it was such a radical idea. Uh, and so I was a little shocked that it even had come up. I, I thought it required some kind of creative thinking. Yeah, actually, the issue had been up to the Supreme Court three times before. The first, about 25 years ago, uh, out of uh, Los Angeles, a case called Garza versus County of Los Angeles. The court didn't take the issue. Uh, the next case was Chen versus City of Houston, maybe 12, 15 years ago. I represented the city of Houston there. Again, the court didn't take the case, although Justice Thomas dissented from the denial of certiorari. And the next time was a case that was set up to go to the Supreme Court. I think it was filed with that in mind. Uh, Again, I was defending the city. It was the city of Irving, Texas, Mm -hmm. Leapak versus city of Irving, and the Supreme Court did not take that case. And uh, uh, I was very happy on all those because I was trying (laughs) to keep them from taking it. Uh, And in in this one, I was not representing uh, the state of Texas, which was the defendant here, although I did participate as an amicus in the case. Yeah, see, so they needed you to stop it from getting (laughs) to the Supreme Court. Um, I don't think that was the reason. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the spate of voter ID cases that have come down. It seemed like the floodgates really just opened on those in the last couple of weeks. Uh, And one thing that struck me, and I know some people have been writing about it, is it almost seems like it's awkwardly related to whole woman's health, that, because that's been the citation that's come up in a lot of these cases, that for the premise that a lot of these judges are saying, we don't have to take the legislature's reasons if we don't believe them anymore, uh, which kind of a, probably was not intended to be a voter ID line from whole woman's health, but it, it made it and it's kind of started going. Is this do you think that this is going to be the trend going forward, that the voter ID laws are going to face tougher scrutiny because these judges now feel kind of emboldened to, to question legislatures? Yeah, Joe, I think the handwriting is on the wall now. Yeah. You've had a Fifth Circuit decision, uh, VZ versus Abbott, uh, the Fourth Circuit uh, decision in the McCrory case, and now Eastern District of Wisconsin. They're all dealing with precisely the issue of does this type of requirement for a very strict, rigid not very much flexibility. It has to be a certain type of voter identification card. Uh, does that actually have a disproportionate impact upon special classifications, uh, minorities, young people, uh, people that are mobile and maybe uh, socioeconomically di- disadvantaged? All of the courts have generally said, yes, there is a disproportionate impact. And what they're not doing, uh, and this is what I think the plaintiffs who were suing in every one of these cases wanted to do, they wanted to have the court say it was deliberately 
purposefully, intentionally discriminatory. And the courts have gone as far as to say it has a discriminatory impact and it has a discriminatory effect, but they're not going quite so far as to say purpose. Here's why. The South, all of the southern states that were covered under the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act came out from under it when the Supreme Court decided Shelby County versus Holder. And at that point, you had a lot of jurisdictions say we're free from that type of oversight. They immediately instituted a lot of these voter ID laws on the legislative level. North Carolina and Texas, my home state in Mississippi, did exactly the same thing. What happened, though, there is a little-known provision called Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act. If you are found to have a pattern and practice in your electoral practices of purposefully discriminating on the basis of race in voting, uh, you can be brought back into a kind of a pocket version of preclearance. Like, be careful what you pray for. It, yeah. it could come. And that's why the plaintiffs are so strongly pushing intentional, purposeful discrimination. They prevail, but they prevail on a, a basis of saying in Texas, for example, that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the nationwide vote right. dilution provision, was violated, but not in a way that was intentionally discriminatory, same way in um, uh, North Carolina. That's why I think both sides are, are litigating. They, they don't want that purposeful discrimination finding from the state perspective. They do want it from the plaintiff's perspective. And, and I might add that the discriminatory intent issue is still open in the Texas case. Yeah. It was remanded, and the court, uh, under different standards, will reconsider that uh, and conceivably could still rule that there was discriminatory intent. And, you know, on the record, she may be justified in doing that, but in the Fifth Circuit, which is a very conservative circuit, the en banc decision was nine to six. Uh, six judges didn't want to find any possibility of discriminatory intent. It might be a tough finding to uphold on appeal mm-hmm. if it went back but again. But it has tremendous consequences yeah. either way the decision goes. And Wisconsin, for example, would be outside of that controversy. Right. It was never covered under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Texas, uh, North Carolina are very much in the teeth of that issue. Wow. Yeah, and that back door, uh, it, I've not heard as much about that back door. Very few uh, people, yeah. very few people have. It's called pocket preclearance. That is fascinating because yeah. that's that's something that I feel should be getting a lot more attention. Uh, there to was those one law review article in the entire country from a student, wow. Yale Law Review, and everybody flocked to it. They said, "There's no data on this, no information." So he he got famous very quickly. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I had practiced in this field for. 30, 35 years, something like that, I don't think I'd ever heard of Section 3 until Shelby County came down doing away with Section 5 because if you were in a Section 5 state like Texas, it didn't matter. You're already under Section 5. If you were outside of it, you might, you know, it it might have had an impact, but it really didn't uh, around the country, and now it's become a big issue. Yeah, I actually live in a what was a Section Five yeah, a covered, Brooklyn, covered yeah. state, yeah, covered portion of a state. Right. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, and I didn't really even understand that we were until I was, uh, I was elected to a party committee thing once, and we wanted to change the way, you know, counting something or other, and somebody, the lawyer, stood up and went, "No, yeah, actually, we are require preclearance." And I went, "Really? Preapproval <laughs> by either yeah, Justice like, Department yeah. or the D.C. District Court?" It was a yeah, we pretty, we did not realize that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, now the next prong then. Let's talk about the racial gerrymandering, the gerrymandering aspect of this. This has come back to the forefront. In 1993, 
there was a North Carolina case that went up to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, I've always called him the godfather of racial gerrymandering, uh, Professor uh, Robinson Everett. Robbie Everett was a professor at Duke University, well-respected by all of his peers. Uh, and he actually took the case in the latter years of his practice, and he prevailed on the basis of saying that a district that is drawn predominantly on the basis of race, racial classifications, with the obvious intent to create racial enclaves and maximize uh, minority majority districts, districts that have a majority of the minority population in them, when it subliminates or puts aside or, or does not really give any emphasis to legitimate non-racial traditional districting principles, contiguity, mm -hmm. political considerations, incumbency, uh, but it's predominantly almost to the exclusion of other factors based on racial characteristics, is going to be uh, subject to strict scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause, which is many times the kiss of death. That happened in the Shaw versus Reno case. That led to a spree of uh, cases uh, between really in uh, the Fifth and Fourth Circuit over the next several years. Uh, Georgia with the Miller versus Johnson case, all of these established principles that were well established by the mid-90s. It lay dormant. You would hear every now and then about racial gerrymandering, but it just, it just went quiet. And then uh, when Shaw versus uh, Reno type litigation met its quietest time, that's when it picked back up in another form. The Supreme Court handed down the Shelby County versus yeah. Holder case. There went preclearance, and you had all of a sudden many states saying, ah, oh, we're free to enact all sorts of voter access restrictions. And uh, we're also free to do redistricting plans as we want to. And we've got to be careful, though. We still have some precedent out there. North Carolina, uh, Texas, several states, my home state, a lot of these were engaged in legislative districting in the middle, during, and after Shelby County v. Holder. And they all knew, let's be sensible about this. Do not do anything that is either overtly or implicitly predominantly based on race. They tried their best. Uh, cases in Virginia and North Carolina uh, were the immediate cases that got snagged by this. And those are cases that have been litigated and gone back and forth to the U.S. Supreme Court. In the middle of all of this, Justice uh, Nino Scalia dies. That's where we start with February of this year all the way up to the present. And you've got, you've got no ability to get a consensus out of a 4-4 court. Right. What is the burden of proof? What deference do you give to a legislative body? Do you give them a presumption of constitutionality? Uh, but this, the, what we call the constitutional tort of racial gerrymandering is back. It's just like that little scene at Poltergeist when she says they're <laughs> back. They are back, and, and big time. And these decisions are all they're, de they're decided. They're on the books. The area of law is not settled. Yeah. I never would have anticipated that. I started doing this work in 1981 in the redistricting wow. arena. I never would have anticipated we would be where we are today. We've gone full circle almost. Wow. Yeah, and Ben's been talking about racial gerrymandering, but there have been cases, too, about political gerrymandering where you draw these uh, very convoluted districts for the purpose of entrenching one party or another, one faction or another, uh, so that you have situations, Pennsylvania, uh, I think, is a good example where the Democrats carry the vote in the state, but the Republicans have a very large majority in the congressional delegation because the district lines are drawn to ensure that. And those issues have gone up to the Supreme Court, and it, it is sort of a limbo situation because... Some judges or justices think that there is no cause of action for political gerrymandering. Some think there is. And I think it was Justice Kennedy who said, well, I think 
there could be one, but I haven't seen it yet. And so that's sort of where we are. Everybody's trying to find something that is so outrageous that it would attract the attention of the court. And maybe, of course, the court's going to change some. So, but as of now, it is next to impossible to prove a political gerrymandering case easier to do a racial gerrymandering case. Right. Who'd have thought Justice Kennedy would be punting something? Well, right. I, I love the intersection <laughs> of pornography law and redistricting. I'll know yep. one when I see it. Right. That's a, a fantastic quote to go back 40 years on. Yeah, no, um, pornography and political gerrymandering together again. Uh, <laughs> you heard it here. Yeah, the whole majority-minority district thing has kind of turned into a double-edged sword, it feels like. like mm-hmm. it, early on, it was this effort to increase representation by these groups, and now it's pushed to a limit to kind of, uh, the Pennsylvania case is an excellent example, yep. where create these 100% minority districts so that the uh, Republicans in the rural parts of the state can end up controlling the legislature. Joe, Correct. let me mention yeah. one thing that is the big picture. Mm-hmm. What this has done, and it's a pattern of 30 years of, of redistricting that started with maximization agendas, with cases that, that created enclaves, it has destroyed in many jurisdictions competitiveness of districts. If not destroyed, it's, it's severely limited the level of competitiveness you'll end up with incumbents that are automatically reelected. No one would dare challenge them because they're in a safe district. Right. That's a, a lot of people question the way in which that's squared with American democracy. I don't get into those big questions. I just litigate them. <laughs> but I think that's, that's a big overpowering issue. And the, we, we wonder why we have gridlock today. I think it's a contributing factor at least. Yeah. Now that you say that, it just triggered in my head that it strikes me that the only time you ever hear of incumbents losing is if they get primaried by somebody right. who's a more extreme version of that district, which yeah. probably is a factor of creating districts that are purist politically. Correct. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Bob Ben, for joining us today. We've reached the end of the road here on the road with the Legal Talk Network. For all of you who listen, thanks so much for listening. Uh, be sure to Give us a review, subscribe on iTunes or whatever your podcast app of choice is. And uh, we will talk to you soon for another episode of On the Road with the Legal Talk Network. That was great. Yeah, um, yeah those are fascinating. I'm going to have to go back. Get the Yeah, that's good. Get the ABA discount. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.